This episode was originally released on April 21, 2021. Enjoy listening to this popular episode as Victor Kumar and Steve Waters from Wright Property Group discuss the most frequently asked question, is now the right time to get into the property market? Tune in, now. Investing insights with Wright Property Group. Exploring trends in real estate. And helping property investors gain financial security. Hey there, everybody. Steve Waters and Victor Kumar from Right Property Group and back again for another Investing Insights podcast and recording, Vic. Mm -hmm. And as we say every fortnight, a lot more has happened. There is so much more news. There is so much more narrative around the different platforms uh, in the media space. And all of it is driving consumer sentiment in one way or opinion in one way or the other. That's, so what's right, been- that's right. Yeah. So uh, when we look at these news articles, a lot of them is quite predictable because we've seen this before in various uh, market phases, and you can almost see. Yeah, and a good example is you know the banks coming out predicting growth. Um, the the reality is that we can only predict growth based on trajectory, and trajectories change, and hence the change in the banks' rhetoric. Where last year it was doom and gloom, where this year I think ANZ's come out come out with the most buoyant. Mm. Where uh, definite double-digit growth in this year. Yeah, and and that's nothing against the banks and their projections or their assumptions, uh, because that's clearly what the modelling is. It's yes. just an assumption, and they've got to look at the trends with some background, you know, economics, if you mm-hmm. will, behind it, and they'll make the call accordingly. I I think for me though, it's more around of well, how much credence do you actually give the projection, yeah. considering that it's a hundred and eighty degree turnaround. Mm-hmm. Yeah, within a, such a very, very, very short period of time, because what they're not considering here is the emotional or the emotive overlay um, that's actually on top and in behind and mm. beside all the data points. No one is ever going to get that right. No one can look into the crystal ball and say, well, the a human emotion or a trend is going to go this way and be 100% correct, especially when there's other influencing factors such as, in this case, COVID um, around the world mm-hmm. and also I don't know, I keep going back to people's entrepreneurial spirit. It is far different today than what it was five years ago, 10 years ago, and especially 20 years ago. Yeah, ab- absolutely. And if you look at uh, the savings history of most people as well, certainly gone through the roof. Uh, and um, that leads to part of the growth spurt as well because we now have got more disposable income to spend and we can't spend it overseas. So <coughs> yeah. what are we doing? We, we are either upgrading our home, we, we're buying more furniture or renovating, or we're buying a car. And you could also throw into that mix the the offset facility, which yes. I think is the greatest invention within sort of the, the finance yeah. ecosystem, if you will. Yeah, for a moment I thought you'd say since sliced bread. Well, no, <laughs> no, it's too expensive. Um, but it's it gives people the ability to be their own bank, as we all know, mm. um, but more so be in front. And that gives them a, a certain uh, piece of liquidity which – it wasn't available to them mm. yesteryear. So they can ebb and flow in terms of that that moment in time with risk. And I'm not talking about red or black at the casino, but how they feel between their own ears or the wealth effect. Yes. Because if you, it's all good to have the money there, but if you can't get at it, mm. then you're in a spot of bother. But if it's there because you've been continually contributing to it, well, you know you've got a, a backstop. You know that you can still make sound decisions. And I think that's all part of, the education piece that's been going on for many, many years mm. uh, and people's f- 
filter of being more business orientated to their own finances. That's right. Yeah. So if you look at all, all the all the moving parts here, right? So first of all, uh, interest rate ultra low, right? Haven't seen this this low ever. Um, then you've got the savings, which is quite uh, abundant out there uh, because we can't spend overseas. Uh, then we've got uh, the government incentives that have come in, which has certainly helped with the home builder and job seeker, job keeper, all of those that actually shored everything up. Uh, and on top of that, as you said, the wealth effect, because we're actually starting to feel wealthy. You know, we've, we've handled COVID really well. Um, and the question most people <coughs> tend to ask is, given the trajectory of property, is now the right time to get in? And, and there is, for each person, the answer is different because it, it comes back to what you're trying to achieve. It comes back to um, what your financial circumstances are right now and whether uh, you can rearrange your budgets. Something as simple as if you've got principal and interest payment, if you change that to reset the 30-year loan or uh, change that to interest only to free up the money that you're already spending to help hold on to a larger property or hold on to another investment property, um, that, that would certainly help you get into the market. So it's not a clear answer to say, is it the right time to get in? Um, because investing is all about time in the market and also timing the market. But it's not timing the market from an economical point of view. It's timing the market in terms of um, your own unique circumstances. I'm glad you said that because people tend to get put too much focus on timing the market, mm. like when is the most um, beneficial time to get in based on what property prices are yep. doing and maybe choice. But it's for me, it's more about is the timing right for you? Mm -hmm. And a really simple analogy might be that, well, two years ago you couldn't borrow because of the thresholds and capacities or the loading, if you will, mm -hmm. whereas today it's it's not and it gives you the ability to be able to, to borrow. Now, let me be very clear. I don't think that everybody should go out and borrow money. That's the whole responsible lending versus borrowing scenario. But it's now before you may not have had the capacity in the bank size, but now you now you do. Well, then potentially that's your time. Yeah. That's your timing. Mm -hmm. Because the other part or the other component of the timing is time in. Yes. So how long you're going to be in the market. And that all comes down to being business orientated mm. as we keep talking about. You had far too many people – and I'm, this is me just repeating myself, I, I think, from every podcast, but far too many people think that the hardest part of investing is purchasing, identifying the area and purchasing. Mm. And I think that's the wrong way to look about it. It's sort of in, yeah. rev it's in reverse. Yes. That's the easiest part. That's the execution part, right? You've got yeah. to have the planning and, and the uh, holding bit. It's the how you it. control it mm -hmm. forever and ever. Yes. Because what happens is... People tend to uh, focus on one component or the other, whether it be cash flow or whether it be growth. Um, and side note, you should be concentrating on both or creating uh, mm. a balanced portfolio or an approach anyways. But what people do is, especially the, the people that chase the growth and the growth only, they oh, don't worry about the cash flow. You know, it's, everything is going up. Everything mm. is going up. And I can actually just deal with the fact psychologically that there's zero cash flow or very, very poor cash flow until the growth stops. And once the growth stops and you're in such a poor cash flow position that you then become resentful to the property. Yes. And when you become resentful, the chances are that so are 70% of the populace around investing and you decide to offload just when everybody else is. Mm -hmm. Whereas if you had have taken care of that, that cash flow component, and I'm not talking about 
positively geared properties or anything, I'm saying being business orientated, well then that keeps you in the game for an extended period of time and you don't become resentful to your investment asset. Yeah, so you're buying within your own means, right? So it's not competing against Joe Blow down the road. It is actually buying based on your financial circumstances and what you're trying to achieve. Uh, And that way you you actually um, get rid of FOMO, right? Because you're purchasing towards a plan. And, um, uh, you know, we're talking about buying, but there's also times like this, you can potentially also sell and rearrange your portfolio. Of course, there is a huge transactional cost when you do that. But properties that have been um, have done what they need to do and maybe uh, not no longer fitting well into your portfolio because of change in your income, change in your outlook, uh, or even change in that area, maybe a good good time to offload the property. It's actually funny you say that because I was having a conversation with myself yesterday. You around, talk, talking to the men in the mirror, do you? I know. I just talk to myself <laughs> a bit. It's um, positive affirmation. No, I was having a conversation around well. And everybody may or may not know the story about my service department up on the coast um, that's really done nothing until until now. Mm-hmm. But what it does is it takes a chunk of servicing capacity out of me. And if I was ever going to sell it, now's the time. Now's the time to sell it while everybody's in lock, um, yeah, country lockdown, if you will. We've got no international travel, and that's a reason a lot of these areas are doing well. So I'm now doing the numbers on whether I liquidate mm-hmm. that particular asset to free up capacity to get rid of a dog and replace it with a better performing asset and replace yeah. it with a better performing asset because every dog has its day <laughs> and <laughs> today might be it but there's there's a lot of people in those circumstances as well and i would urge everybody not to buy into that yeah at this point in time as well because it'll hurt you That's over right. the next yeah. five to six years just a word of caution right when, whenever you're selling you need to take into account all of the transactional cost and also your ability to replace that rental income stream if you if you wanted to, because you've got to look at it from the fact that you have paid stamp duty when you bought the property, you are going to pay capital gains tax when you sell, uh, and if you're then replacing that asset with another better performing asset, you're still paying stamp duty for that new asset as well. So there is a very strong changeover cost. There's a lot of costs involved, but mm. there's also opportunity cost. Yes, that's right. And that, for me, is the, the main but there's mm. certainly not going to be any CGT in my case. <laughs> but that's a different story. So Vic, I thought today, um, not that I want to give a market update, but I, I think it's more, I'd like to talk around the pulse of the market mm-hmm. and how it's changing people's appetite, yep. which is very, very important. Also the way that they're, uh, if I could say, interpreting data. And mm. what I'm really meaning by that is not historical data, but what the asking price is, because we're starting to see a lot of changes in the way that the real estate agents are advertising. Mm-hmm. So it, instead of before something was listed for you know, 899000 now we're seeing expressions of interest yep. or $150,000 range, or it's mm-hmm. going to auction. And so for a purchaser, it's very hard to establish what value is. So I want to talk about that. also want to talk about the yields throughout different parts of mm. Australia, how some are performing very well and some are, are still going backwards. Yep. So that really means that the average is better than what it really is. Mm-hmm. Um, and how some of the capital city auctions are starting to cool. Right. And I say that I say that word deliberately cool yep. because cooling is in the eye of the beholder. That's right. Uh, and also how a few areas throughout Australia, as we've mentioned 18 months ago, two years ago, about an accommodation crisis are now at that point. Mm-hmm. So let's start off first with the 
asking price and how to actually determine what is value, mm. not just in this market, but but any Long-term. market. Yeah. yeah. So what? Let's start with the um, the the narrative within certain media organisations where there's they've hammered real estate agents around underquoting. Mm. Yeah, and and ha- it's it's an illegal practice. Firstly, um, secondly, I don't believe that's true. So if you haven't read it, you'll find it somewhere. Google it about agents underquoting. Now, what that means is that agents are saying a property's for sale for seven hundred and fifty thousand dollars to get your interest, and it goes for eight fifty, and it goes for eight fifty or, or nine hundred thousand. Now, whether that be via private treaty or or way of auction mm. is irrelevant. My opinion on this is that the agents aren't underquoting. They just can't keep pace of value mm. and nor can the owner. When you have a rampant market that we've seen throughout certain corridors of Australia, it's no one knows what the value is. It'll be what someone is willing to pay for it on that day. So that's why we're seeing multiple stories around, I think there was one on the weekend where it went for a million dollars over oh, reserve, yep. for $1.2 million over reserve. Now that's a bit crazy to be fair. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's being caught up in the moment as a purchaser or the crowd was, you know, a bit of herd mentality, if you will. But the agents didn't know that it was going to do that. Mm. They're not under-quoting. They're, they're truly putting a price or a scope to it that is allowing people to gauge what they think the property's worth. If collectively six people are bidding for it or throwing in offers, then it'll be worth what a person is willing to pay for it. That's right. And we're seeing it continually. And unfortunately, what that's doing now is that narrative around underquoting for the agents is making it harder for purchasers. And the, and the reason I say that is because now the agents are putting on bigger bands. Mm. So it's worth between 750000 and $1.4 So that gives you no directional piece yeah. because they want to cover their backsides mm-hmm. around this whole underquoting. So, or we'll run it to auction or, so, or we'll do an expression of interest. Yeah. So if you look at the mechanics of listing a property, so uh, I as an agent go in, let's say I was a sales agent, I go into the vendor and say, look, you know, this is how much we can sell the home for. Here, Here's the data to show. So I may use a data house like RP Data as an example. And we know that that's six to eight weeks behind where the market is because it only take, takes into account settled sales. Then uh, I, I'm, I'm saying, what would you be comfortable with right so let's say uh, the vendor said i'm 700 between the data and what the what the vendor wants is where the listing price lies right because i can't make this as an agent i can't make these prices up i need to back myself with data hence the price band and hence the lower pricing uh with with most properties because that's what the data is at, at that point in time then you you're looking at it from a viewpoint of when the general public comes in, so in, in most cases it comes to open home, if you get 50, 100 people walking through that door, the, the process is at the end of the day, the agent will get onto the phone and call every person that walked through the home to say, do you want to put an offer in? It's best and final offers by 6 p.m. And so you, you're getting a quasi-Dutch auction. I was just there. thinking that. It's a yeah. silent auction. Yeah, yeah. And, and it is not uncommon to go above the listed range in a market like this now is that overinflated potentially not because the banks are still valuing it at that price now if the banks are significantly devaluing it that means one of two things you have overpaid or the bank that lender has got more risk in that area as well it's a good point because 
there are occasions where a property won't value up to the purchase price because mm. of their book, so to speak. Yes. The lender's book is is full and they see risk in that area just because of their exposure. Or it might be a type of dwelling like a mm-hmm. inner city apartment in today's environment. But the thing with asking prices, expressions of interest or price bands to me, I, I want to say it's a directional piece, but there's there's re- there's really no substance behind it because the asking price or the bandwidth is, re- is, ir- is irrelevant. Mm. It's how you determine value in that particular property. Uh, and it reminds me of an instance where um, we bought a block of units. That's you, right. you and I bought a block of units down in Wollongong, North Wollongong, many, many years ago yep. where we went above asking price mm. in a normalised market purely because the agent and the seller who'd had it since – he built it 40 years ago, actually didn't know what the property was worth when there was direct comparables 200 metres mm. up the road. So it wasn't a matter of stupidity, stupidity ask paying more than asking price. It was a, that's where we saw yeah. the value proposition. And, and uh, in that market, what we were trying to do was push off all of the other suitors on that property. Psychologically. Right? Yeah, because it was unusual to pay above listed price, but we had done reverse uh, reversed our sums to say, okay, if you bought it at this price, there's still huge profit in this property. Yeah, um, and um, uh, we 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 made the offer accordingly, and of course, um, we were able to secure the property. Now, if I if I forward base that to today, right? Any property that we're looking at today, it's not we're not pushing the other people away by making a offer above listed price because it's become the norm, mm. right? Uh, and it's become the norm because of supply and demand. It's become the norm because of affordability. So if you look at it from an owner-occupier point of view, uh, if you're paying a million dollars extra, it's circa 30000 more in interest payments. Mm. Yeah, uh, So that's how most people are doing their sums. And if you look at how the agents are playing the market, in, in inverted commas, um, because they don't know where the market's going to end up, we're now starting to see um, advertisements such as um, new to the market, contact agent, uh, or open to offers, mm. right? Because they don't want to put a range to say, let's see where this ends up. Let's let's hold people back. Let's put them through a through an open home. Let's see where it ends up. Conversely, though, even though that on the surface might seem like, well, we're the worst buyers agents in the world, paying above asking price, and it's not the norm. It's there are just certain certain mm-hmm. circumstances that will dictate to do so. The whole under market value sort of narrative as well. Uh, is a little misleading as well yes. because I can remember going back once again a few years ago now where we paid 40% below asking price. Mm-hmm. Now, on the surface, that makes us look like absolute heroes, but the property was never worth that yep. to begin with. So it was once again us establishing where we saw value mm-hmm. and clearly after a while so did the vendor and the agent because they accepted the offer. Now, if I take that into today's circumstances around value and vendor expectations, I think there are some areas throughout Australia now, more so Sydney, that is starting to reach the top of expectations. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see, I believe anyway, we're going to see people now say, I want a piece of that action in terms of selling because vendors are just, and agents are putting on crazy prices now or crazy, crazy ranges. And people are sitting back saying, if they've owned their property for many, many years, saying, well, you know what, I think we're probably somewhere near the top now. I want a piece of the action. I want to take that. Mm-hmm. I want to get that absolutely amazing price. And I think collectively there are certain parts of Australia and probably more so Sydney 
that are now going to do that. Now, I don't mean that we're at the top of the market in terms of growth. I think we're at the top of the market in terms of rate of growth. Yeah. Big difference. Mm. So I think we'll, there's a possibility that we'll come back to a more normalized mm. growth trajectory because people aren't fools. It's going to get to a point in time where the buyer, in fact, they've already got to that point in some areas throughout Sydney, where they've got to the, that inflection point if you were saying, this is now crazy. Mm. Like, I, I can't afford the – my serviceability is not there. I don't have the deposits for it because it's now well and truly above what it was 12 months ago. And importantly, we're starting to see the rent vesta back into the market. So the person that was looking for their owner-occupied property is now saying, yeah, this is, I'll just rent my lifestyle, so mm. to speak, rent where I want to live. Because they can't get a foot in. Because they can't get a foot in and deploy their capital elsewhere in whatever the asset class may be and they'll become the rent vesta until a normalised market becomes more apparent or potentially more choice. Mm-hmm. I think that's what it's going to be. Choice and competition will always rule the market. Yeah. So if you look at it from a market projection and, and looking at the current trends, now the market's not slowing down anytime soon, in my opinion. Right? So we've got enough momentum happening this year and perhaps into, into next year. And then when we throw open our borders, we'll have another surge of growth as these new immigrants come in and, and creates more demand for, for an already normalizing supply. That's interesting. So on the surface there, Vic and I just disagreed. So un- unless unless I got it wrong on what he was saying, I said that I think the rate of growth mm-hmm. will slow and you're saying that the rate of glo- growth will stay the same or you're just saying the growth will happen? The growth will happen. Okay, so yeah. we're on the same page. Well, that would have been awkward. Yeah, it would have been right? yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cut. <laughs> Not that we... Yeah. yeah just, just for the listeners, we actually don't edit our podcasts and our videos, right? It is what it is. It is what it is, unless the recording stops. Yeah. And um, that's never our fault because we don't press the buttons. Um, so you, you also raise a really interesting point there around once those international borders open because mm. we do have a certain markets and certain property types that are still well and truly oversupplied and Correct. people keep forgetting about that. Well, mm. the suburbs are doing very well. The inner city apartments throughout Sydney uh, and Melbourne in particular are still suffering where their vacancy rates are quite high. They've lost mm. value because it does cater for that transient. And I say that loosely, but it caters for the transient population. So yes. the international students, the hospitalities, uh, hospitality yeah. service providers mm-hmm. uh, and the like. Once that's absorbed, I'd, I would then suggest we'll start to see another growth pattern emerge. Now, whether that's elevated or not is yet to be seen because mm-hmm. what will happen is the as the inner cities are absorbed, the supply sort of scenario will emanate back out into the suburbs where it's already very, very tight. And that will increase yep. the yields as well because mm-hmm. what we have at the moment just on the subject of yields is this compression factor where mm-hmm. the, the rents are – in most, sorry, not most, the rents in some areas are either falling in the cities or they're stable mm-hmm. out in the suburbs of certain parts. But as the price continues to increase, the equation starts to reduce. So the yield, the gross yield actually starts to, That's right. starts to reduce. Now the question is, which really takes me to the next subject, because we're both agreeants on the growth trajectory, is around the yields mm-hmm. throughout certain parts of Australia. So we've just talked about that the inner city units are suffering. Yep. Now that's been quite general. There are some some units in the more niche areas that are extremely strong, but generally speaking, they've mm-hmm. they've contracted. 
when do you see, other than what I've just said, when do you see and do you see value in units? I do, I do. Um, uh, but it needs to be a specific type of unit. So we're not talking your high rises, we're not talking your brand new, we're not talking your gyms, pools, that sort of thing. Your standard red brick units. Uh, and really, you, in my opinion, the units are probably one, two years behind where the house market is. The house market is absolutely roaring ahead. And as you said, the prices are keep keep going up and therefore the yield starts compressing, right? So it then becomes, you need more capital to get into a house and you need more cash flow to get into a house because the yield's lower. So therefore the units then all of a sudden start looking really attractive, particularly your larger floor space units. I'm not talking about your pokey little units. Mm. We're talking about your larger units so that you we can also cater for the trend to work from home, right? Because that, that trend is gonna be, be around for quite a while in my opinion, right? So uh, we need to be then looking at the larger floor size units without the lifts, the pools, and all that sort of stuff, and within still the lifestyle areas as such, uh, without being caught up in the um, the transient rental population. I think that's the important point because lifestyle is in the eye of the beholder mm -hmm. once again. Um, there are certain areas that people would not even think that it was possible. There are yields throughout Sydney of circa 5% on, on units. units. Now, yeah. I'm not advocating that everybody go out and buy units. I'm not saying that, I'm just telling you what it is. Mm. Um, but they're well-located mm -hmm. units. They're on infrastructure. They're in areas that are always in demand. And the 5% yield at this point of the market shows you that there's a- Not a strong a, demand. Yeah, there's not a supply issue, uh, if you will, and nor is there on the pipeline. Because a lot of unit developers are saying, well, units are out of flavor, favor, flavor. Why would I be putting in D, DAs and you know, FISO studies and what have you to go and build 30 stories walk up when there's nobody there to buy them and there's already a supply, mm -hmm. generally speaking. So there's going to be a gap in the market and I agree with you. It's finding, if you are looking for that, finding the right area that has the sustainability, which would, I dare argue, if it's if it's already in a, um, if it's already at a point where supply and demand in the unit market is, is equal. Mm. There's no oversupply, there's no undersupply. One could argue that it'll only get better yeah. as those borders, when those international borders mm -hmm. open up and you know, however that looks like going forward. But you do need the good cost to operate. If you are yeah. if you are looking at it, you just still need the good cost to operate. So that what we mean by that is those peripheral expenses such as council rate, strata, body corporate mm -hmm. uh, and the like because that does start to erode that gross yield. Absolutely. And and if you look at it from uh, an easy way to work out uh, whether, a, you know, if you're comparing two units is take the strata fee off the rental income and you're comparing apples with apples. So if let's say one unit is $2,800 a year strata fee and the other is 3200 and you're trying to compare whether both are just as good, you add your strata fee uh, or take your strata fee off your rental and that becomes a net rent. And now you're comparing apples with apples. As long as the complex mm. is a- Yeah, like, it's yeah, comparable. Similar, so, yeah. yeah. Um, now that doesn't mean, once again, that I think everybody should dive into units. Mm -hmm. You could argue the fact that the yield chasers will start to look at that- Soon. Very, very soon. Um, there's no money in the bank. Yep. In terms of keeping it there, can't afford the the detached dwelling, the house in the suburbs, what have you. Whether you're a renter or a sorry, whether you're an investor or an owner occupier, mm -hmm. um, stocks and bonds might be too 
up and down for you, doesn't suit the risk profile. So there's going to be a tipping point where the units become attractive to that part of the market. And we've seen that trend in, in, in quite a few markets as the market changes, the houses become too expensive and the yields compressed. The natural transition is to the units. And this is where also people do go wrong because they just buy any old thing uh, that's out there uh, based on superficial numbers. You've got to dig in into, into these strata fees. You need to look at, you know, have they got any major infrastructure change within the building coming up, which would mean more money being chipped in by you? Special levy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is, is that as it's commonly yeah. referred to. Um, the thing with, as we're talking about yields, just for those that don't understand, let's, let's give some numbers around yields because in the residential space, you might see it in the adverts, you know, 3% yield, 5% yield, you know, whatever it may be. But what we need to understand, just a quick little bit of education for the, those that don't know, is what those, what the barometer is in terms of yields. And what I mean by that is what is a point of equilibrium is 3% vacancy rates. Sorry, I'm talking about vacancy rates here. Uh, vacancy rates, is that a point of equilibrium? Um, because it's a, it's, a, it's a big media piece in terms of low vacancy rates, high mm-hmm. vacancy rates. Now, the, the general rule of thumb, thumb is between 25 to 3% vacancy rates is a point of equilibrium. So yep. it's enough supply for enough demand. Once we get to 2%, you're getting into a 2%. Yeah, you're getting into a tighter market. So we're talking vacancy rates once again. You get to 1.5%, it's an incredibly tight market. 1% is, crisis. is a crisis. Now, the reason that always they're important general numbers, if we, bring, if we bring it to today and what certain areas are, it opens up or it tells a bigger picture. So mm-hmm. the inner city, coming back to the apartments, inner city apartments in the subpar areas, I'm going to say they're at 7%. Yep. There are some areas Easily. that are at 7% vacancy rate. So that's a, a massively oversupplied market. And you, mm-hmm. can, you can see the telltale signs, two weeks rent free, free television, you know, holiday, rent my property and get a holiday to cans <laughs> out of the fire into the pot. So it, it, it's a very different market that if we go out to the suburbs of, say, I don't know, let's call it Perth, mm-hmm. where generally speaking, it's at 0.7% vacancy rate. So 0.7, so yep. well under 1% is an accommodation crisis. And in fact, you can see the, the certain state legislative bodies in WA talking about how tight it is. Same thing with, uh, say, the northern parts, of, actually north, south, west and east of Brisbane, extremely tight. They're mm-hmm. sitting at circa 1%. In fact, I was speaking to an agent uh, that manages one of my properties up there the other day where they manage 800 properties themselves. And in their entire rent roll, they had four vacancies. And that's, that's, that's pretty phenomenal, right? If you take that into perspective, only four properties out of 800. It's that point. Uh, it, it's, you know, they wouldn't have had that for the last 12 years. And he, well, here's a, here's a tip. When you're looking for real-time data with vacancy rates in an area, just ring up every agent that you have the time to ring, ask them, ask to speak to the rental department, ask how many properties they manage and how many they've got vacant, then collectively you'll see real-time data mm-hmm. in terms to what the vacancy rate is. So they've got eight, they're 800 properties and they've got four vacant. Like that's an incredibly low number, incredible. And it's been in the works, in the making, for quite a few years to get mm. to that point. And some might argue it's because of APRA and they pulled the handbrake in up back in 1617, investors got out of the market, population still grew, and here we are today. Yeah. Um, so I'd know it'd be interesting to see what they do 
moving forward. Yeah, that's right. So if you look at the flow and effect of that, Steve, right? Uh, the natural thing would be that even though it is illegal, people will start bidding towards the rent, right? We have seen this before, where they will, off their own bat, offer more for the property than it is advertised. So not only are we seeing people offer more for sale properties, we're now starting to see people offer more for rental properties as well because of the supply and demand scenario. Well, you don't have to travel too far out of Sydney, north or south, and people are literally offering over the asking price of rent. Mm -hmm. In fact, there was one, I'm going to call it three weeks ago, where we thought the market rent was $410 a week. There was, I think, 60 people through the open home on a Saturday to rent the premises. And it was offered $465 a week and prepaid three months in advance. Yep. Now, that's a crisis. Is it, a, is it sustainable? Not at all. Mm. And in fact, when you enter into a market like that, take it while you can, yep. ethically, but it's not going to be forever. So you but need to budget yeah, for it. Don't pin your sums on that Correct. number. Don't Correct. Pin your sums on the normal market. Yeah, and that's the important thing because supply will ebb, mm -hmm. will ebb and flow. So in your opinion what you're experiencing speaking to the team what is the tightest market in australia at the moment it's the lifestyle areas right so your, your gold coast as an example would be certainly there byron bay definitely there tweed uh, tweed absolutely um so if you look at it it's, it's your and i think this is more a transient population right now people are moving there for covid but they they may tend to stay and what will happen there is then the developers wake up and say, hang on, demand's pretty strong, let's build. Right? And, and council, cou sorry, council will get greedy mm -hmm. and say, yeah, let's open up those corridors of land because yep. we want the rates. Mm. And so it'll then tip very quickly into oversupply and then the rents will drop. So anyone that's buying in that area based on the higher rent that we're getting right now, may be in for a rude surprise three, four, five years down the track. So the question is then, do you think there are certain areas throughout Australia that are doing well because of COVID versus they've just been amplified because of COVID? A bit, a bit of both, right? Uh, in a lot of areas, the, the growth, both from a rent and um, a value point of view, has been brought forward because people have brought forward their plans to move into those areas, right? Because of COVID, because of the change of the way we're working. But there certainly is still a COVID factor to that area in, in, the, in the inflation point of view, inflation of rent, inflation of price. Again, because of the demand into that area. And if I'm, if I'm living in that area, I can't really sell or move on because there's nothing to move on to. It, the upsizer or downsizer mm. isn't going to sell in today's market until they know what they're buying. Exactly right. And that's that vicious wheel, mm. um, chicken or egg scenario. But I, I would agree. I think there are some areas throughout Australia lots of areas throughout Australia that are experiencing immaculate growth purely because of the circumstances that COVID have mm -hmm. created. Now, some might argue that those circumstances are here to stay. Um, and to a degree, some of them might be right. But mm. generally speaking, I think those markets will see a contraction in price. Mm -hmm. They'll see a uh, contraction in population as well over the next, I'm going to call it two to five years, as people move back to metropolis yep. where the jobs are. Now, I'm not very clear. I'm not talking about all areas that are experiencing well. There are just some areas that mm -hmm. are 
that are doing well because of COVID. Yet there are some areas that were already starting to show the signs of tremendous growth. So all those pieces of the puzzle were there. It was just brought forward because of the circumstances that mm -hmm. COVID created. Yeah. They will continue to be sustainable. The rate of growth might drop. Mm. Their numbers may start to contract, but overall they'll be healthy. Yeah. But there are other areas that will suffer. Absolutely, they will. And, and this is where it comes back to fundamentals. It comes back to the lifestyle click in that area as well. Uh, and as well as the normalization of work, uh, coming back to the office or still working away from home, but maybe it's a different area now. I've got, I've got my feel for this area. I want to move elsewhere now. Uh, because if you look at it from a regional point of view, those that were already in the regional areas couldn't really move out. Uh, and those that were going to move into regional have moved in. Um, so it's sort of pushed that value up, the demand up. Uh, and unless there are underlying fundamentals to sustain that long term, that trend will at some point in time reverse. So what we're really talking about here, Vic, is the sea change. He's not even looking at me. He's, he's, he's saying, where are you going to with that? The sea change, I was trying to coin that at the beginning of COVID, C for COVID. You're not even keeping up with me. I know, right? <laughs> it's, um, but it's. A, I'm going to say it again. So if any journos are listening out there, sea change, sea change, sea change. <laughs> well, it, 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 it's a truth though. Yeah. It is. It, it, there's a COVID tax, yeah. if you will, that's been placed upon many different things, boats, cars, Bentleys. Mm -hmm. <laughs> You've got that in. Got it in. Um, and certainly property, property as well, which yeah. comes back to the point some areas are doing well because of COVID. Mm -hmm. um, but let's not lose sight of the fact that there was – there were, there were, and there still is, many areas that were going into this well and truly undersupplied to begin with. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, and and this is where, you know, the, the template was already there for that growth. COVID and our change in outlook towards life has actually brought that forward or amplified it. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So where do you see, where do you see the general tempo of the market in terms of rental accommodation at the moment? Like I'll go back to the, the question earlier on where do you see the tightest market? So you mentioned the Tweed, the Gold Coast, kind of one of the same. Mm -hmm. um, where else? It's the middle ring uh, of, of most states that are showing very strong uh, rental demand, right? So um, you're, you're suburbia basically, mm. right? Suburbia with good infrastructure, good schools, um, good shopping centers, easy commutable distance to CBD. That's where we're seeing a fairly strong run in terms of rental and also for pricing as well. Well, it's the affordability. Mm. Yeah, scenario. the affordable once, corridors, yeah. Yeah, once mm. again, yeah, the affordable corridors, some people refer to that as the mortgage belt. Mm -hmm. It's there for a reason because that's where the majority of the population can afford and that's where they reside, whether yep. they rent it or they own it. And so it will always do well. It'll ebb and flow in terms of its value like any asset class mm. will. But I'd suggest that the, the well-located ones that are on in and around infrastructure and represent value, once again, from in terms of its value proposition as a saleable item, but also from its rental component, won't experience the wild fluctuations mm. that you see in different areas because your pool of potential sellers or tenants is much larger. Correct. All the time. Yep. And that goes probably every every state mm -hmm. and yep. city in, in Australia. So if you look at it from, from years down the track, right, uh, and interest rates go up, these are the areas because they're called the affordable corridor, 
this is where most people can qualify for a mortgage. Whereas the top end, um, uh, you start seeing less people um, qualify for the mortgage because the interest rates are so high, so the assessment's higher. Uh, and therefore, generally, it starts that that uh, trend reversing. So it start, starts on the top end and comes back. But there's more sample numbers too. So they yes. say, oh, the mortgage builders suffer. Like I'm, now we're being negative here in a situation where rates are rising and mm. yeah, potentially jobs are lost. That the mortgage belt has suffered. There are more, more mortgagee in possession sales in the mortgage belt. Yeah, but that's a, that's a data point because there's more well, transactions. It's a big, it's a bigger sample. Nobody yep. really ever wants to talk about the the truth behind it, if mm-hmm. you will. Um, but once again, in our experience, the rate of loss is a lot further. Yes, because there's always someone there to fill the void, mm. uh, if you will. Now, clearly, there's some parameters around that open green space. Mm-hmm. How much more infill development is there to create competition uh, and the like? So it's really about pipeline analysis mm-hmm. at this stage, not at the other end of the equation when the market is sideways. Correct. Because it's too late Yeah, at that point in time, coupled with population mm-hmm. growth and the like. So let's now talk about finance, even though we did a Facebook Live the other mm-hmm. day um, with Z from MLS Finance around some of the moving parts um, continually within the finance uh, ecosystem and how that affects purchases Moving forward, what's your opinion on rates, mm-hmm. serviceability calcs, and as a result of that, approvals? Okay. What are you seeing in the market at the moment via our clients? Here's an ironclad prediction. Interest rates will go up. I don't know when, though. Right? No, so. I was going to hold you to that. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it, uh, this, this is the reality, right? So uh, interest rates won't remain the way it is forever. It will go up because of the cost of money. And already we're starting to see that the banks have moved their four-year fixed rates because their cost of money has increased. Even though the reserve bank's um, uh, rate is still the same, the money that the banks are buying has increased in price and the flow and effect will be, they'll pass it on to us, the borrower. Yeah. Uh, So um, approval rates, I think it will increase in the interim. Right, because you're starting to see a lot more banks becoming uh, a lot more accommodating in terms of approvals. Um, certainly, the approval times have changed; they've reduced. Uh, there's still a big disconnect between, um, you know, what the banks are providing and what they're promising in terms of time frame. Um, uh, so, but that's that's the nature of it. When they have a promotion, I've got four thousand dollar cash back. Of course, they get. You know, channeled all the business because everyone wants that four thousand. Get their hand on the four thousand uh, when they're refinancing, especially when they're comparing. I can get the same rate here, but I can get the same rate here, but I can get four thousand in my pocket as well. Of course, I'm going to go there. Right. So that that blows out the time uh, and and the um uh, the therefore the the people that are going with that bank it keeps them out of the market for the, just that little bit longer. Uh, it is not uncommon to take up to three months to get your pre-approval if you're starting from scratch in in that scenario. Uh, apart from us, it takes us six months. Six uh, months on a good yeah. day. It, um, look, there is there is some sort of conversation around the cartel approach mm-hmm. uh, of the banks at the moment. I'm not calling you out banks. Um, because we need your money. <laughs> <'cause I'm> going, <laughs> yeah, because I'm going for a loan. Um, but the cartel approach where if you go direct to the bank, mm-hmm. the application process is far quicker yes. as opposed to going through a broker. broker, a broker. Now, some there's probably 100 brokers out there at the moment nodding their heads saying, absolutely. Um, we see it. Mm-hmm. 
like every every day of the week. But that's just a part of the game, yeah. the process. It's what we have to deal with. Even though the banks are quicker, I'd still suggest going over the counter is is an inadequate approach. Yeah, yeah. because the structuring isn't right. Yeah, they don't take into account what you're trying to actually achieve with your, particularly from investing point of view, you're trying to achieve. It's stock standard approach for a bank is to try and get as much security from you uh, in exchange for the loan they're going to give you. So in other words, they're going to put your home and the investment properties together as a default. Whereas if you're going with a broker, a good broker will structure it so that your home and your investment loans are separate. The properties are not linked directly. Uh, you may use equity out of your property, your home, to purchase the uh, investment property, but the, the two properties aren't put together. In other words, they're not cross-securitized. Absolutely, and that's the golden rule. So if you are dealing with a bank over the counter or direct through the bank channels, the very first question you should always ask is, are you cross-securitizing me? Is mm-hmm. this cross-collateralization? Yeah, I, I wouldn't ask the question, are my loans separate? Because the answer will be yes, because they'll give you two accounts, but yep. the securities are together. Correct, so am I being cross-securitized? Mm-hmm. And if, if they explain it to you in a way that is baffling, ask, keep asking the question until you're 100% satisfied with the answer. Now, that also raises an argument, should you ever cross-securitize? There is a time and place for it. Yeah, yeah absolutely there is. There is. There is, and it might be, without sort of going down a rabbit hole, that if you've got several properties with $50,000 equity in them all then in combination, it's a chunk mm-hmm. through the one loan yeah. application, if or, you will. Or by cross-securitizing, that's the only way you can get the loan. Yeah, so be it. 100%. I have, I've had a few cross-securitized in my life, mm-hmm. uh, and they served a purpose, uh, but as soon as I could, I separated the, yep. separated the assets or separated the properties um, so that they were standalone. Because at the end of the day, it's always security first mm-hmm. always and that's in the bank size like just remember that they're trying to minimize their risk in any way shape or form yep and if that means having more assets at a lower lvr from a holistic approach mm. well then that's good business yeah sense. A, a common approach for the bank would be that you know you won't have to pay mortgage insurance we'll give you 110 percent of your purchase price right what they're doing is putting both properties together your home and the investment property uh, whereas you can get exactly the same effect simply by structuring the loan properly Correct. That actually raises a point around the LVR position, so loan-to-value ratio position. There will come a time somewhere in the future, we don't know when, when the banks will start to dial back Mm. the proposed LVR um, that you're going for. We didn't see that too long ago where it was near impossible for an investor to get anything above 80%. Those times will come again. Mm. Just that at the moment we're in a position where it's the first homeowner or the homeowner that's dominating the finance space. The investors are now jumping in Mm. head and feet first. So we'll start to see investor finance numbers increase dramatically and it's at that point in time that we might see certain levers pulled uh, to just mitigate the lender's risk and slow the market down that way uh, As if it doesn't slow down organically already. Mm Yeah, there will be some prudential levers that are pulled just so that the market is forced mm. to slow down. Because the, the, the governments don't want a bubble. The banks don't want a bubble. We as investors don't want a bubble, contrary to what others think. We yep. want a, a more sustained rate of growth mm. rather than the, the larger peaks and troughs. Um, and if we get the bu- bubbles, all our cost to operates increase, increase yeah. dramatically, immediately. Mm-hmm. Well, um, if you look at repair work right now, right, if you get – if you get any repair work, compare that to two years ago or even a, a year ago, 
we are paying about 20 maybe 30 percent more right now yeah i've got some quotes coming in at the moment which is horrific alarming <laughs> i prefer to say um but it's preventative maintenance mm. so it's you know i may as well be i may as well do it now and yeah. some of it's necessary as well um but just back to the rate the rate scenario is just remember that you always want to be liquid liquid mm-hmm. so with the disclaimer while you can borrow you should you don't have to spend it yeah you can just park it somewhere it won't cost you anything or very little in terms of fees and charges but it's there mm-hmm. it's there for the rainy day or it's just there to help you sleep at night and that's that that's that corner that everybody that isn't looking after the property and their business after their purchase gets forced into mm-hmm. to make those you know, irrational decisions yeah. it's always going to be around how much cash is in the pocket or is how much is in the bank so the state of the state of your wallet dictates. or purse dictates the state of your mind mm-hmm. always have the money before you need it says every successful business mm-hmm. you know if you start clamoring for it well then you'll start to set there's some other component that you'll start to sacrifice yeah always and that might be become one of those sellers mm-hmm. and in fact there are still those sellers in the market believe right now. it or not yeah right now there are we uh the team the other day got a distressed sale ethically so it was through the agents and and what have you um because they'd bitten off more than they could chew mm. was the backstory uh and when i mean by they'd bitten off more than they could chew what happened was that they decided to buy their forever home mm-hmm. before selling this one because they were fearful they were going to miss out so fomo yeah so they controlled it, but then they couldn't sell. They had to pay more for the house they mm-hmm. were purchasing. Therefore, they wanted more for this particular uh, property, which wasn't where the value was. And they had a caveat loan and second mortgage, and it was being called in. So they mm-hmm. had to you know, drop their pants very, very quickly to get the sale immediately, which was based around, for them, it became not about price. It became more about terms and conditions. Yeah. How quickly can you get out of the cooling off period? And how quickly can you settle? Mm. So that was their value proposition is can you settle in 10 days? If you can, here's the price. So they're likely to have more of this down the track. So if you've got the money now, if you made your equity liquid right now, you've got a wad of cash sitting around, you could take advantage of an, an opportunity like that if it comes comes along. So the key to investing is this, that you need to be prepared for an opportunity and maybe it will never come around rather than have an opportunity come around and you're not prepared. Yeah, because then you start to shortcut the process. And the process is that mitigation Mm -hmm. for you. Never shortcut the process, whether it be... Actually, that raises another point. The amount of people that I see that are foregoing um, valuation, so they're doing... The common terminology is cash unconditional or 66W if it's a New South Wales um, purchase where... The agent and the seller are saying you're at the same offer as, as you know Jack and Mary and and Bill, but if you can make the terms more sweet for my seller, well then you're probably going to get the opportunity. And mm-hmm. so the easiest thing to do is in theoretically is to go cash unconditional, so not relying upon valuations or finance, final finance approvals. Yep. Never, never, never do that unless you have a remarkable amount of offset line of credit redraw mm-hmm. cash whatever it may be to settle the loan should you not get finance yeah you have to ha- be absolutely sure it's, it's akin to buying at an auction 
Right? Yeah. So you've got you've got to tick all the boxes except the last bit, which is the bank giving you a formal approval. Correct. And the other one, never shortcut the process, is pest and building reports. Yes. Ever, ever, ever. Because mm. it's no good for you just to go around and look around the house yourself. Get an expert. Get an expert in there who's going to crawl underneath the house in the roof cavity, have all the right gear, moisture meters, and da 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 da, da um, so that you can then make an informed mm-hmm. decision. You might want to shorten the terms in terms of the the cooling off periods or the pest and building and finance clauses, as long as you're it's still acceptable with you and mm-hmm. you're still willing to walk while you can, um, but don't forego those two vital vital pieces yeah. of the puzzle. So when when you're in the in the buying mode or buying zone. You need to have a team ready. Your pest and building inspector, your your solicitor or conveyancer to review the contract, your lender uh, on speed dial as well to say, hey, I've got this property. How does this this look? Will it, you know, let's say you're paying twenty k more, right? Then your approval, can that be rejected? And and these are really important because you've got these three major moving parts that you need to address so that you're keeping yourself safe. Otherwise, uh, in in most states, you do lose money. Uh, if you if you're having to pull out, not not just the initial deposit, because in some states you can actually get it back, but you've spent money doing pest and building report. You spent money doing valuations if it's a second or third year lender. And some people start to because they might have been, I don't know, they've they've paid out a lot of money on uh, valuations or pest and building reports and mm. uh, contract reveals, and they've gone to auction and they've systematically lost. Yeah, at every auction, uh, then oh well, I've spent thousands. I'm just going to roll the dice yeah. on this most dangerous. Part of the you process. Know, the, the, the common common uh, rhetoric is, I want my weekends back, right? So you've got one weekend back, but now you've locked yourself into many weekends of working to pay off this mortgage. Very, very, very many. And the one thing that um, I always say to clients is, if you have the possibility to be over approved, be over approved mm-hmm. more so than under approved. Yep. Clearly, because it doesn't it's cost to you. Drop it. Yeah, it doesn't cost you anything to be. Yeah, when I say over-approved, more than what you're willing to spend. So if you've got a budget of 700 as an example, and you can get a pre-approval at circa eight to nine, do it. It doesn't cost you anything, and you don't have to spend it mm. is the important thing because the market is at such a rapid pace at the moment, 700 might not be enough that you thought you were going to spend. Yep. It might be 750 mm-hmm. as an example. So be over-approved, not under-approved. And that's it, Vic. Yeah, that's it. Um, like uh, uh, every podcast we go everywhere uh, to tell you what's happening in the property market um, now uh, what do people need to do if they want more information well they can go to the socials or or give us a ring go mm-hmm. to the website rightpropertygroup.com.au book an appointment in if you'd like to chat with Vic or myself uh, where you can speak to Kate Melissa or anyone else in the team mm-hmm. uh, and they will schedule a meeting with us and now, if you're an existing client it may be review time so get in touch so we can sit down and tweak all the numbers and plot and plan for what the next strategic uh, moves are in line with the commentary we said earlier on about being prepared being prepared, and also making sure that you control the asset mm-hmm. well. So that's it, Vic. Good Another talk. one done. Yep. It, uh, we'll be back again in a fortnight's time uh, with Phil to talk more about property because I suppose that's what we do Mm -hmm. and in between then we'll have a facebook live so if you don't watch the facebook lives every second thursday night at uh 7 p.m we do a facebook live where we just talk about anything that's topical but just as importantly it gives everybody a chance to throw all the questions because uh, we are live you can ask those questions live yep and just like the podcasts we're usually over time Mm -hmm. and we go off on different directions so we hope you enjoyed this one and we will see you next time 
The information featured in this podcast is general in nature, does not take into consideration your financial situation or individual needs, and should not be relied upon. Before making any investment, insurance, tax, property, or financial planning decision, you should consult a licensed professional who can advise whether your decision is appropriate for you.